For some of you, you recognize that song. It's Say Something by Great Big World and a little bit of a mix of Christina Aguilera and the baby angel trapped inside of her voice kind of leaking out when she sings. Um, we wanted to start the series um, with that song because I think it's easy to say the word bad advice and kind of conjure up a lot of things in your head, but I wanted to invoke, and because I think that song captures the emotion of those moments, right? There's, there's a sense that when you're really seeking advice and you're in this place of desperation and you're this place of like absolute, what do I do? I'm standing at a crossroads and I know my choice matters. And you know you're in a space, in a place, and you don't know what to do with it. And you don't know how to respond. And I wanted to conjure that emotion and remind us of that emotion. I think that song captures it because it's this, this picture of this couple and it's like, look, If you just say something, we can work out. And the sense of powerlessness that sometimes being in that place can can pull up inside of you. Like, I I feel so helpless. What What do I do with my child? What do I do with my spouse? What do I do in this moment, in this life, in this job? And and we wanted to dive in in September. And say, let's just talk about bad advice. Let's talk about the things that oftentimes derail our lives. Because I'm convinced that most of the time, when we look back on a place, when we arrive in a space or in a place in a relationship or in life in general, whether it's personal or professional, when we look back, what's often preceded that is a choice of following some advice that in the end was bad advice. And I wish it was as simple as uh, maybe some of the advice columns that we see in newspapers and magazines. Uh, There's one that was a British teen advice column that came across that I wanted to show you that kind of I wish all life choices were this simple, right? One is um, this simple advice to nag him and he'll stay, right? He'll just, he'll hang on to you forever. Like this is the worst relational advice ever, but um, it's in a... British teen advice magazine. Or perhaps my favorite piece of advice is the one that Charlie says on her shout out that this is so fabulous that, you know, whenever you're traveling and you really just have that longing for that toast and jam flavor, that travel with an iron, but not a steam iron because that won't make the toast quite taste right. She's like, it feels like a little bit like being at home. And you're like, no, here's a piece of advice. If you really like toast that much, travel with a toaster, right? And, and I wish it was obvious, I wish life choices were this obvious, that when you saw bad advice, you instantly recognized it. You're like, that's the worst advice I've ever heard. But that there are young British girls who read that and they're like, that's the key to my relationship. I just need to nag him. And it's like, no, no, don't nag him. That's horrible advice. And what I want to do today in in our time together, instead of talking about bad advice, wouldn't it be better, wouldn't it be nice if we could recognize bad advice? Wouldn't that be far nicer? Not knowing how to undo or to rework or to backpedal, but to actually spot it when it comes up in front of us. Like, hey, if you want toast, travel with a travel iron, not the steam iron kind of recognition. And so this morning, what I'd like to do for us is I'd like to step into 
a moment in the life of an ancient king, surrounded by advisors. And on the surface, stepping into this moment that happened 3,000 years ago doesn't seem like it would have any impact on our today. But what we'll find in stepping into their conversation happening around the room as these advisors are speaking into this king's decision, and what we see in the aftermath of the advice taken, I believe are two characteristics. These two characteristics that almost every single bad advice has in common with one another. They're, they're filters, they're characteristics, they're tells that when we see them, we have a clue that this may be bad advice coming at me right now. And I want us to, to walk out of this room, and in the weeks ahead, we can deal with some, some specific bad advice, but to walk out of this room this morning with a filter that helps to catch it when it's thrown at us. And so if you have the Encounter Church app that Nick referenced earlier, if you've already downloaded it, you can click on a message notes, and it's already, the passage is already there with you, uh, or you can click on Bible. Um, if not, it's going to be on the screen. But I want to set the backdrop. This is probably a story that you've never heard, um, even if you maybe spent some time in church growing up. This is one of those kind of stories buried in the midst of a lot of other larger stories that can be lost. It's in a book that perhaps you've never even read before. It's a book called First Kings. And it's not because it's about the first king and then the second king that follows. First and second kings is part of a two-volume set that's part of the um, Jewish Bible or the Old Testament and the Christian kind of collection of books called the Bible. And first and second kings were the chronicles uh, the stories, the, the history accounts of the kings of the nation of Israel. Uh, the nation of Israel is a really old nation. It still exists today, but in its original form, it was ruled by kings. The first great king, not the first, but the first great king was the king named David. And most of the book of First, Second Kings chronicles what happens out of his bloodline and out of the aftermath of his kind of monarchy. The first king, uh, David, um, has a son named Solomon who takes over from him. And where David is ca kind of characterized by this warrior kind of spirit, he's Braveheart, gladiator, all mixed in the one. He's the guy who runs into a battle and defeats everyone. He's like an ancient form of Jack Bauer, right? It's just all those great like moments and movies. He's that guy. And he attracts other guys like that guy. And, and so he's built this like phenomenal following this tribal nation because the nation of Israel at the time were a collection of 12 tribes and they all kind of came together under him and they said we want to follow you we want to be we believe in you we love the way you defend and fight for our nation and stand for justice and so they all kind of coalesced under David and said David we want to follow you as king and then David has Solomon Solomon is his son and Solomon is considered among historians to be the wisest man who's ever lived because when Solomon takes over, he prays a simple prayer, God, give me wisdom because to lead your people is too overwhelming for me. And, and God meets Solomon in his prayer and he answers it and he gives Solomon wisdom. And he, not just wisdom, he gives Solomon wealth and he gives Solomon influence to the point that Solomon in this kind of ancient small kingdom of Israel becomes so famous that kings and queens from all around the world travel just to learn from him, to spend time with him, to ask him questions. He builds this incredible infrastructure throughout the land. He's, he's kind of an FDR in that roads are built and government buildings are built and palatial structures and temples. All the grandness of Israel rises up under Solomon's leadership. 
But the catch in all of that is that Solomon, in the midst of building, in the midst of this surge of this nation growing, he does a lot of it on the backs of his people. And they're tired, and they're burdened, and they're overwhelmed, and they're overworked. And Solomon passes away, and his son, Rehoboam, is now king. And that's where we jump into the storyline in uh, 1 Kings chapter 12. And I just want to kind of read the backdrop of verses 1 through 5. Rehoboam went to Shechem, which is a city in ancient Israel, for all of Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Jeroboam is kind of this like, it's kind of Game of Thrones-ish individual, this guy who's wanting to make a run to take over. So Jeroboam, who was in Egypt because he'd fled from King Solomon because he's already tried to lead a rebellion once, has now returned from Egypt because he sees an opportunity. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said, so Jeroboam, the rebellious leader, has now um, led a group of people before the king with some complaints. And they say this, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. So what you have in this backdrop of what's about to play out in front of us is a nation made of 12 different tribes with this growing tension of being overworked, overtaxed, overburdened by the government structure. And a rebellious kind of uh, leader comes to Rehoboam and says, hey, here are our demands. And, and buried implicitly in those demands are some threats. They say, hey, you need to, to ease it. Your, your father almost killed us. And Rehoboam, rightfully so, realizes, okay, this is heavy. This matters. The nation is in balance off of this decision. And so Rehoboam calls his advisors together. He, brings, he says, give me three days. I need to think through this. This isn't a, this isn't a simple choice. I need to process your, your, your question. I need to process what you've said. I need to take in all of kind of the implications. And so he asked for three days. And when they leave, Rehoboam calls two separate groups of advisors together. And it's in the calling of these two separate groups of advisors that I want to read for you their response. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. The elders would essentially have been kind of an acting group of counselors, almost similar to a cabinet of today. And they're speaking into Solomon. And now they've had this perspective that's carried over two different um, kingships. And now Rehoboam invites them and he says, how would you advise me to answer these people? He asked. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and who were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, These people have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I, heavy yoke, I will make it even heavier. My father scores you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam as the king has said, Come back to me in three days. And the king answered the people harshly. Rejecting the advice given to him by the elders, he followed the advice of the young men and said, My father 
made your yoke heavy, and I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. That's the fallout. That's the two pieces of advice he gets. And the one he chooses is the young men who grew up with him. And what happens in the aftermath is the nation falls apart. They say, all right, well, this is, if this is how it's going to be, then we have no part with you. And 10 of the 12 tribes represented that day and that request step out and there's literally the nation of Israel is split into two. And for the rest of nations, for the, for the rest of their history as a nation, they live as two distinct separate nations that would sometimes war against one another. All of that out of one piece of advice taken that was absolutely terrible. And it's in this ancient kind of moment, it's in this ancient boardroom that I see two characteristics that we can pull out into our own personal moments today. The first characteristic is that bad advice is oftentimes driven by ego, not empathy. Right? You see that in the way that the young men respond to him. They, they say ridiculous things. Right? They, Your father scourged with whips, we'll scourge with scorpions. I'm like, what does that even mean? But it... It's big and it's grandiose. It's, it's a desire to try to control the people through fear. It's all ego. Whenever you bump up against someone who's trying to control you with fear, that's, that's not leadership. That's manipulation. It's driven by ego. And that's what you see here. These leaders, he responds to bad advice that's driven by ego. There's, there's not empathy in it. He doesn't believe he ha- he's, he's accountable to anyone. He's like, these people, they don't mean anything. I'll, I'll even press harder on them than my father did. He, he thinks he's above accountability. He thinks he's above any kind of checks and balances. He's stubborn. And he doesn't listen to any type of correction. And whenever you start to see those kind of traits popping up, It doesn't matter how good that advice feels or sounds. It's probably bad. Because there is no opportunity, there is no situation where you and I are 100% right all the time. We would like to think there is, but there's not. And bad advice is oftentimes, it's driven by ego, it appeals to the ego, and it has nothing to do with empathy. And the reason I say empathy is because empathy is important. See, for ego to exist, for ego to to feel okay and to be able to press forward in following a piece of bad advice, it has to seek out spaces where people affirm the opinions it has. It has to find individuals that repeat what they already believe to them. I would call it an echo chamber because an echo chamber just reverberates your own voice back to you, but it's just a little different, so it sounds a little different. And you're like, that's a good piece of advice. Oh, I like that. that. That makes sense. In fact, living in an echo chamber can, can be crippling to you in taking advice because you get no new perspectives. The only perspective you get is your own in different forms and different voices and in different wavelengths. But it's you. It's you bouncing off the walls and off the opinions of those surrounding you. And that's what the young people said, right? Did you notice that? He, he says, how should we respond to them? 
When he talks to the elders, it's, how would you advise me? But when he's around his friends, he's like, how do we respond? They're like, oh, yeah, this is how we're going to respond. We're going to say, my pinky. And they're like, yeah, pinky. Scorpions. I mean, it's, but it, I bet all of them were nodding. Yeah, that sounds, not, yeah, yeah, not ants, scorpions. And they're like, yeah, that's a great piece of, yeah, pinky, not pinky, his waist. I mean, they're like all kind of building off of each other's pieces of advice, and they love it because it's an echo chamber. There's no empathy. All they hear is their own perspective. An echo chamber is one of those dangerous traps that leads us into bad advice. You see, the elders, however, they respond, right? That if you will be their servant, they will follow you faithfully. If you're willing to serve them, and the reason they could say that is that they had watched for decades what had played out under Solomon's leadership. They saw a people burdened. They saw people overworked. They had empathy. Empathy does not mean that you agree with everyone, but empathy means that you understand where they're coming from. You can have empathy and still disagree with someone. You can step into their shoes and understand what life is like and still say, I don't see it that way. But empathy is critical if we're going to make good advice because empathy brings with it some benefits, one of it being an alternate perspective, another way of seeing the world. And you can still arrive at a good decision. Had they listened to the elders, they said, look, I'm still appealing to you and your leadership. They'll follow you forever. And it's not just something they struggle with. There's Even recently, it's been interesting to see a Pew Research study that said that 47% of Clinton supporters and 31% of Trump supporters say that they have no one in their life that's voting for the other candidate. That is an echo chamber. And what happens when you live in an echo chamber is you vilify people. You vilify other people's opinions. You vilify other people's perspectives. You say words where you reduce an entire group of people down to one single dimension, and they're all idiots because they don't see it the way you see it. And your friends all agree with you. you and it's, it is possible in our day and age to live in an echo chamber, watch certain news channels, read certain magazines, read certain newspapers, hang out with certain pe- um, people, read certain social media feeds, and feel completely justified, completely rational in all of your opinions because you're stuck in an echo, echo chamber. And for us to break out of the echo chamber and the bad advice the ego produces in us is for us to intentionally seek out alternate perspectives and fight to be empathetic people that are more informed. Where this fleshes out practically is even in romantic relationships. I'm walking through this right now with someone um, where they're dealing with potentially a divorce. And I've I've warned them. I've said, look, um, let me tell you how this thing plays out. If if you're not willing to be honest with some of the things that you're doing, um, what's going to happen next is you're going to surround yourself with people who are doing what you're doing so that you'll feel better. And sure enough, this week, that's, that's what's been happening. They're going on trips with them and hanging out with them. And, and all of the conversations are like, yeah, you're right and she's wrong and you're smart and she's a moron. And yeah, serves, serves her right that you're doing that. And it's easy, though, isn't it? You've got a problem, ah, text your friends and they're like, oh, yeah, you're so right. They don't understand you. They don't get you. 
that we find ourselves kind of being sucked in to these places. If you're going through a rough relationship right now, if you're in a rough relational patch, whether it's romantic, whether it's within a friendship or with your child, the worst thing you can do is surround yourself with people who are going through the exact same thing. And I know that there is a sense of comfort that comes in knowing someone can feel your pain, but what also comes with that is a lack of perspective for someone to see something about that that maybe you could change that, that would affect the relationship. And it goes beyond that, even with how we parent sometimes. We project onto them. There's not empathy. There's a, I want you to be successful because it looks good on me. I want you to get into that school, and I want you to have good grades because people are going to judge me. And there's not an empathy. It's, there's not a sensitivity to what it's like to live under inside of a pressure cooker. It's ego-driven. What are people going to think about me? And we make choices for our children sometimes that has nothing to do with advice that would be better for them. It has everything to do with what's going to make me look better to others. It's subtle. It's, it's in all the different areas. If you're single, the worst thing you can do is surround yourself with single people who have relational problems. Because they're just going to affirm whatever problem you find yourself in. That we have to intentionally, we have to intentionally seek out people who have differing opinions, differing perspectives, because if not, we will always be drawn towards individuals who see the world the way we see them. That's why I would encourage you to join a life group. We, we believe community matters, and we believe there's, there's health when other people have perspectives and are able to speak in to struggles that we have and see life from a different angle, whether it's because they're at a different stage or a different age or just a different set of life experiences that bring wisdom. And we meet together regularly to kind of process out of the message, what does this look like even deeper in my personal life, my professional life? And we'll have six life groups that start up next month. That means there's six different opportunities that there's a life group that will probably work with your schedule that can be a safe place for you to grow and process and, and have space to navigate these choices and to have a relationship of people who see things a little differently than, than maybe you do. Or maybe it's a mentor. Maybe in your personal life or your professional life, you see the fact that I don't know what this looks like. I don't, for me, in, in my journey, when I became a father, I didn't know what a father looked like. I didn't have one. The only examples of a father I had in my life were horrible examples. And I knew if I was going to be a good father, that I had to find someone who was a good father who could give me wisdom and advice and become a mentor. That I have mentors in my life speaking into me, challenging me, saying, hey, I don't see it that way. And mentors can help you and I take next steps in our life. And it may be that for you, what you do out of this today is to connect with someone. Maybe they're sitting beside you. Maybe it's Jason or I. And say, hey, I, I want to find someone who can help me go to that next level because I'm stuck. And I need someone with a different perspective than I have. Or even one of the prayers I have as a, a parent, um, something that Jenny and I have talked about um, with our daughter, is we recognize there's going to be a day where she no longer thinks that our advice is good. I think I've heard that that will happen. Um, she's four, and it started happening a year ago, so I'm pretty much believing it now. <laughs> Daddy, I already know that. Do you? I didn't know that you knew that already, because you're three, right? <laughs> but I get that. And so one of the things that we pray for, one of the things that we look for is we will be intentional 
and are intentional, in fact, about putting our daughter around women that we love, that we respect, that we trust, who we know when the day she stops coming to us to ask advice, she might still go to them. Because if we're not intentional, our daughter will drift towards an echo chamber. And we want to be intentional as parents about providing an alternative perspective to her life and her challenges even before they arise. And so we encourage little play dates. We, we put them around. It may be why sometimes you're like, why does he have his daughter talking to me? And it's because there's something about you I want her to catch so that down the road maybe she wants to get advice from you because she doesn't want to talk to me or Jenny about it. I think it's, it's these subtle things where we intentionally work in our lives because if not, we will always fight the tendency to take bad advice because our desire to want to be right in a situation will always trump what is actually right. And that's a challenge. But that's just the first characteristic. A short characteristic, it's a little briefer, is that bad advice tends to focus on the moment, not what matters. Most bad advice is very much kind of emotionally centered, focused, lasered in on that moment, not what matters down the road. Case in point, here's the young guys and their dramatic emotional response. Scorpions, our pinkies bigger. Stick it to them, crush them, let them know that you're the leader. He the elders recognize, look, mm, what matters is not how you're feeling right now because of what they said to you. What matters is that you keep the nation together because you're the king. That's what matters is that you're a good leader. What matters is them serving you faithfully forever. And yet he misses it all. He completely skips it and says, no, I want to focus in on the moment. And that's why I want to call him back and bring the hammer down and really press in. But oftentimes, bad advice keys in on the moment. How do you feel right now? What do you want right now? The anger, the, the, the frustration, the disappointment, it brings those things up. Instead of what actually matters, the elders brought a rational, long-term perspective to their piece of advice. And it's always a good thing to bring that. That British advice column, here's another one. I'm like, I think this is just... A, Focus on what matters, not the moment. So one of the pieces of advice, if you're hosting a dinner party and you don't have a lot of cash, make an alternative after dinner mints. Simply freeze a tube of toothpaste, then cut it open, slice them and dice them, and put them out for your guests to enjoy. Focus on the moment, not what matters. I'm like, here's what good advice looks like. If you can't afford to buy mints for the people coming to your party, don't throw a party. But that's a humorous, humorous moment instead of what matters. What matters is you need to get your financial self in line, right? Like you've got serious financial problems if you can't buy peppermints. That's an issue. But no, the moment is, well, what about my dinner guests? And this, this notion of being sucked into the moment and actually missing the perspective of what matters can really cripple us. And just a really helpful thing, this is something I do regularly in my life, is the 10-10-10. And I've even said this to some of you before, that whenever I'm faced with a choice or a difficult circumstance, and I'm not sure what to do because it's the first time I've ever been here, and I'm like, I don't recognize any of these buildings, I don't recognize these roads, I don't know how this goes. 
Um, I'll say, okay, in 10 days, if I make this choice, what is, what's going what's gonna to happen? What will be the fallout from it? What, what will I be thinking? What will the implications on my family be in 10 days? And 10 days just gives me enough to pull out from the immediate. But then I'll add, okay, what about 10 months? Okay, in 10 months from now, what is, like, I'm starting to pick up new life rhythms out of the, this decision. And this is kind of starting to forge a new sense of character and life. What does that mean? And then I'll even zoom out 10 years from now. What does that look like? and 10 years to live in the aftermath of this advice. And that tends to help because what I don't want and what I've seen before is that people make choices in the moment to destroy their relationships or to to do something unwise financially. That means 15 years from now, they're watching, they're spending Christmas together all by themselves, watching reruns of family videos on VHS, eating ramen noodles by themselves. And it's because they didn't click out far enough to see that in this moment, what really matters is that. And none of us would ever choose that. None of us would ever choose that. But when we make the choice over here, we choose that too. And bad advice pulls us into that moment, not what matters. In verse 19, there's this scary passage. It says in that the kingdom of Israel, that the nation of Israel was still battling to this day. You see, 1 Kings was written, um, it was a contemporary collection of what was happening at the time. So when the writer wrote that down, it was because he was still in the midst of it. It was still happening in front of his eyes. And he saw the continued aftermath of taking this bad advice. And so the last thing I want to challenge us with is, over the course of this week, and it's actually inside of the message notes, is to memorize a passage. A passage that... Over the course of this week, I think you could probably digest enough of it just to to have stored inside of you, something that might help to further emphasize the filter that we've seen in this passage, a passage from Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, I've copied that in your message notes, and I would encourage you to memorize that this week, but kind of help you to understand the this is written to a Hebrew people in the very this exact same context we find ourselves in right now, actually. Um, so the fear is, in the Hebrew world, fear was a little different than what it means today. Today, fear is kind of a terrifying, it's, it's we, we think, absolutely negative. But fear for the, the Hebrews um, was more awe and wonder and majesty. It, it would be like standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and realizing there's a healthy awe because you're like, I could fall into that. This thing is massive and big. So since if, if you've ever been around a really large like animal, like an elephant or a lion, it kind of, a little bit of it stirs up with that. And you're like, whoa, this is like, I'm over my, it's, it's Shark Week on Discovery Channel. It's the crazy people inside the cage. It's, Wow. And the, the proverb 1-7 was a piece of advice given ironically by Solomon to Rehoboam. These words were written and spoken over Rehoboam as a young boy. And what he was trying to communicate to his son, his son, the awe and wonder of the Lord, the realizing that life is bigger than you, that it doesn't center around you, that it centers around him, and that we are to be accountable to him, that our lives have responsibility that goes beyond what we want in the moment. He's like, that. that's the beginning of wisdom. You start, if you want to grow wise, if you want to be a person who walks in good advice, start there. 
And then he gives his son a warning. But fools despise instruction. And what's tragic is that Rehoboam wasn't someone who stepped into a moment of bad advice without having any kind of backdrop. He'd been told this his entire life. And all he had to do was listen. And realizing that by placing his trust, by recognizing that there was someone above him that he had to answer to, that that brought perspective. That brought a sense that depleted the ego, that fostered empathy. An ability to pull out of the moment and to see what matters. And if he had just listened to that piece of good advice, a nation would have never fallen apart. People would have never perished in the wars that came after that as they fought one another. And then at the heart of this passage is a God who desires for us to live out lives that are wise, that, that respond to good advice, that follow good advice, and that walk in the fruit of good advice. He's a God who desires for us to avoid the brokenness and the, the baggage that comes with the bad advice. And Jason, a couple, work, a couple weeks ago, introduced a word that maybe some of you have never heard or maybe processed through. It was this, this strange kind of Christian, distinctly Christian word on the surface called repentance. That maybe in the midst of this bad advice or in the midst of living out in the aftermath of some bad choices, that one of the best pieces of good advice is repentance. But I want to kind of describe what that word means. Um, I've been studying, because I'm weird and I study random things. That's my disclaimer. I've been studying Italian art and Renaissance, and um, one of them specifically has uh, been frescoes, which I think are just strangely, like, incredibly fascinating pieces of art. And fresco, uh, frescoes are a plaster that's still wet that's applied on a wall. And then the painter would dip the paint immediately while the while the plaster is still wet and would begin to paint. And what would happen is as the plaster would dry, the fragments of the paint would dry with it and, and it would be locked in. And there are still frescoes that have been around for almost thousands of years because it's a powerful, permanent kind of artwork. It's, it's really beautiful in the textures that it calls. But in the Italian art world, when you deal with frescoes, there's this interesting term they have. Because you're dealing with wet plaster that can dry, mistakes can be permanent. You can't erase it. And to go back painstakingly to chip it all away and try to make the plaster work again gets really difficult. And so they have a word in the Italian art world, especially in the world of frescoes, called pimento, which is the Italian word for repentance. And the idea is that the Italian artist, when he's painting this masterpiece, does something that's wrong or makes a mistake and they quickly repent of it. They erase it. They scrape it off. They say, okay, I'm done with that. And they start back over with a fresh piece and a different choice. And it makes for a masterpiece. And I would argue that the word Jason introduced to some of you a few weeks ago, this word that comes with this beautiful imagery attached to the Italian Renaissance is a living picture of what maybe some of us need to do of in the midst of bad choices and bad relationships or some, some mistakes or some 
maybe some brokenness, for us to repent. Say, I'm done with that. I'm done making those choices. I'm done living in that echo chamber. I'm done living for the moment. I'm going to erase that. And God, would you help me start over new again? Because over this next year, what I've challenged us to do is to live a life with better decisions and fewer regrets. To live a life that that steps out and says, God, I want to trust you in a new area of my life. God, I want to experience more of you in my life. I'm not even sure if I believe in you, but this year, can I, I want to give you a chance to show up in the midst of it. God, I want to, I, I desire, I know I was made for more. Will you help me live for that more? Have better decisions and fewer regrets and a life that builds a better relationship with my spouse than I, than I saw growing up or that I've even had recently. Better relationship with my kids than I have with my parents. A better, better choices in my career, in my personal life. God, I want to live that kind of life this year. Will you help me? And what you'll find is what Solomon's instruction for him is that if you're willing to begin there, you don't end there. You end in a life of wisdom. You end with a life that starts to creep in peace and joy. Because when you're living lives of better decisions and fewer regrets, the aftermath is so much better in that season. And that this year, you and I, can begin to experience the life we were created to experience, a life that's a masterpiece. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you give us an opportunity to experience you, to to walk in the weight and reality of what you desire for us. And I pray that we would be people who uh, live lives of wisdom, that you would give us the courage in our personal lives as we look at the decisions we're making to Um, As the Italian art world says, repent, to erase it and to say, God, help me start over new today and to walk in that freshness and that our lives this year would be filled with better decisions and fewer regrets and that we created to be masterpieces would live out masterpieces in relationships and our choices and our um, romantic life and our single life and our parenting life and our professional life. And thank you that you're a God who desires that for us and who is for us in it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, one of the things that we do every single week is we carve out space uh, just to respond. We, we believe the most helpful and hopeful um, hour of your week should be on Sunday. And that many times in the midst of our everyday schedules, we can kind of blow through, push through, press through all the things that we probably should reflect upon and adjust in our lives. And so we carve out space every Sunday for us to be able to process and ask those questions and think about those questions. And so what if I were to make better decisions? What would those fewer regrets in my life look like? And uh, so there's a song that we wanna uh, kind of sing over you and invite you to sing with us called God of Miracles. Because we recognize for some of you in here today that you look and you dream and you imagine and it doesn't feel possible, it feels impossible. Like. God, you know the state of my relationship right now with my spouse, or you know how it is at work, and God, you know our financial position, or God, you know what's happening with my child and me. That feels impossible, God. 
And this song is just a reminder that it is not just us stepping in, that behind the scenes to use this Italian artwork, it is not just our hand on the canvas. It is his hand and his strength that is willing to guide our hands if we're willing to ask for him to step in and to lean into our lives to help us to live out a life with better decisions and fewer regrets. And this song is a reminder to us that he is the God of miracles. And it gives us an opportunity to cry out and to call out for him to work in our lives. For, for those who call Encounter Church Home, it's a space we carve out to, to return to him what he's been gracious and he's given to us. That we're a generous church and it's because we have generous people who call Encounter Church Home. And so we, call that, we, we carve out that space to, to, to give back to him. And if you're a guest like Nick referenced earlier, um, this would be the time for you to fill out the connection card on the app or to keep, uh, maybe click on starting point and let us know how we can step in with you in this journey or to even write on the connection cards way we can pray for you or the ways we can get to know you. So I invite you to stand and we're going to sing or respond and we'll come up in a few minutes and close this out.